uh, well, I told somebody that you're like, funny, it must be Calvin, and it turned out I was right that time. And uh, I'm Tom Kearney. I'm the uh, presiding uh, goober, is what my friend Jim Carr would say. Actually, I'm not. I'm just the presiding official of the Tom Kearney Show every night, Monday through Friday from 9 until 10, and we try to bring you shows that are entertaining and edify. Tonight we have one of my favorite guests to... Uh, talk about because I always wanted to be a history teacher and indeed was one for a part of time and this person is a history teacher and I suspect if uh, I keeled over he'd turn out to be a pretty good radio announcer and uh, his name is Ernest Dollar and uh, I can never get over associating him with Oscar Wilde and if you don't know what I mean by that you'll have to discover it on your own. Ernie are you there? I sure am Tom how are you doing? I'm doing fine I hope I haven't insulted you so far. Oh, it would be the first. You, I should say, <laughs> to give you a pedigree, that you are the uh, director of the City of Raleigh Museum and the Pope House Museum. And That's right. So, to some extent, we will, uh, and you will explain what they are uh, as we go along tonight. You are a, uh, if I remember correctly, you uh, are, have a master's degree from NC State University. Isn't that right? That's right, from the Public History Program. Good Wolfpack. Yes, and before that, doesn't UNCT follow figure in there somewhere? Yeah, that's where I did my undergrad. Yeah, they used to have some. I don't. I haven't haven't checked the faculty list lately, but uh, I think Richard Current was a professor at uh, at UNCT at one time, and he was one of the big dogs in Southern history. So they had some good faculty members. Randall Jarrell was a, an English mm-hmm, instructor mm-hmm. there. So some good faculty it used to be when I was young before. Well, probably about the time your mother and father were around, uh, Ernie, it was called the Women's College of the University of North Carolina. But now it's That's UNCT. right, yeah. Ernie has been a, a guest uh, on our show for, I guess, for about the last five or eight years, somewhere in, in there. Uh, Mrs. Kearney was taking an Ollie course one time, and she came home and said, there was a guy who talked to us today at the City Museum downtown, and you might like to have him on your show. And she has your card, so you are discovered. By Mrs. Kearney, Ernie. So, and uh, first of all, the tell us about the City of Raleigh Museum and uh, what its circumstances are now, because I think, like most museums and uh, public places, it's closed now. But uh, get us straight on that. Yeah, that's right. It's uh, we are we're closed, but we are located in the old Briggs Hardware Building, right downtown on Fayetteville Street in downtown Raleigh. Uh, the Briggs Building is a beautiful, iconic. Um, it's one of the original uh, hardware store buildings built in 1872 downtown. So uh, you couldn't ask for a better place for a historical museum. So the museum opened up uh, 1993 as the Raleigh City Museum and changed its name when the city took it over in 2011. So that's when I came on board to be the director. And so we closed up shop uh, due to COVID probably about mid-March, and we've just been closed ever since. And so we've been kind of waiting for uh, that phase three to open the doors, so we can have folks in and kind of teach them a little bit of history about other pandemics that the Raleigh's had over the years. You know, I thought as I was waiting for the theme to come on, I thought I should have asked Ernie if we could talk about other uh, pandemics. Let's call them that. But I, I, the, the thing that I'm familiar with is the Spanish flu over the time of World War One and things like that. But there, there have been other pandemics that have affected the capital city. Is that what you're saying? 
Uh, yeah, you know, we, we did an exhibit on the Spanish flu uh, just a couple of years too early for the 100th anniversary. So we really looked at how the how the pandemic hit Raleigh and how Raleigh dealt with it and got through it in such a short time. Um, but, uh, you know, over the years, um, Raleigh has been swept by disease during the Civil War. There was a, a, a large smallpox epidemic, and, of course, in Wilmington was yellow fever. So every now and then these diseases kind of run their course through Raleigh's probably streets and populations. Yeah, both of those that you just mentioned are really occurred before or about the time that the the germ theory of disease was, was becoming popular. Robert Koch mm-hmm. and people like that, you know, who looked at things in the microscopes and saw them swimming in water. I've always, I, I like to read, as you, you know, and I'm sure you like to read, and I, there's, there's a book called The Ghost Map, which is about the, the the big cholera epidemic in London back in the 1850s, and the guy who helped put a stop to it discovered that it was uh, that if they closed up a certain pump where people would go and pump water, the cholera went went away. He he didn't understand the connection, but he knew that if they took the pump handle off, everything was going to be all right. So, and it was 50 or 75 years before they really understood the germ theory. Of but it's interesting how that little bit of history goes on. But history goes on, even as the museum is closed. And so you're you're about your business, and uh, one of the things you're doing is helping us understand a little bit of history tonight. And uh, what museum? What uh, what am I trying to say? What programs were were represented at the museum? If I went and it opened tomorrow, what would I be looking at? Um, well, you know, we've got a, sort of our, our core exhibits that we've got up right now. Um, we've got a great exhibit called Hello, We Are Raleigh, which kind of is sort of the core exhibit that talks about these themes, these great things that Raleigh's based on, government and business and culture. And we've got it sort of festooned with incredible artifacts from the city's rich history. Um, we have um, exhibits, uh, photographs from the Pope House, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, um, which kind of... Uh, to lay out the entire century of African-American photographs, kind of a go from the early tintypes and the very early photography on up to Polaroids that you can find in the Pope House collection. Uh, an exhibit that I think some of your listeners might be um, familiar with is Dwayne Powell, who was a much-loved um, political cartoonist at the News and Observer for a number of years. So we've got some of his cartoons up, and we kind of tell the history um, for which those cartoons were drawn against, because a lot of people don't know some of the, the topics behind some of these cartoons. And then lastly, a couple of years ago, we opened an exhibit on Dick's Park, the history behind Dick's Park, um, and it's called From Plantation to Park. And so we really wanted to explore the, the hospital, the, the patients who were there, the people who lived there. And uh, about 150 years before, for the hospital, it was a, a plantation, so we kind of explore that history as well. Okay, we're, we're going to stop right there, and uh, when we come back, I'm going to ask you, did you mention Dorothea Dix, because I was one of those people who knows her history, and I was afraid when the uh, when the uh, hospital closed and they changed the property that... Uh, uh, that uh, uh, her name would disappear, and it doesn't deserve to disappear. Right now, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back with Ernie Dollar, the director of the City of Raleigh Museum and the Pope House Museum, in just a couple of minutes. 
the Tom Kearney Show on Monday night, July the 20th. And our guest tonight is Ernie Dollar, the director of the City of Raleigh Museum and the Pope House Museum. And we'll talk about the Pope House Museum a little bit further down the line. But we've been talking about some of the history of Raleigh, uh, some of it showing up in exhibits that are currently at the museum. Were it open, but like most uh, public uh, sites, uh, we are as uh, others waiting. Uh, well, what did you say it was, Ernie? I haven't been able to keep up for, for stage three to come along and change things so that things can open back up. Well, you know, right now we're scheduled to open up on August 11th, so that could all change depending on the governor. So we've had a couple of other uh, start dates before that we've been pushed back, so we're kind of in limbo. You mentioned uh, that you had dealt with some of the uh, epidemics or uh, pandemics or whatever we are calling them. Uh, did you have anything that covered when the, the, the epidemic of polio was around? I can remember that because I was a child and the children were much thought about at that time and the parents went a long way out of their way to try to keep their children from being around other children too much. Yeah, and I hate to admit it, but that's one of the few, you know, later uh, pandemics in, in lived memory that I know very little about. Well, it, it, I just, and it, it's on my mind because I remember it's the one that touched me personally. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and as I said, my parents uh, uh, wanted uh, to their children not to, it was contagious and not, not to be able to contract it from, from other children, and, and they would do... Uh, all kinds of things, keep them in the house, not let them play with other children. I can remember there was a family in Goldsboro who owned a uh, maybe a, a house outside of town. They were well enough off to be able to do that, but they sent their children basically to their own summer camp, so to speak, during the summer to keep them away from other children. But, uh, of course, then we have Dr. Salk and, uh, and others who come along with vaccines that end up dealing with polio. I was just wondering if that was the case. Uh, we have had uh, the the uh, coronavirus uh, business on our mind a great deal. And something else that's been on our mind uh, of late is is uh, racism and it, the question in the United States. And it made me think about the, the racial situation historically in Raleigh. And the other night I happened to catch uh, uh, about two-thirds. I came in late. I knew, knew enough to be able to put the first part together of a uh, documentary that was on the public television, I believe, that dealt with the Overland community. Can you, mm-hmm. can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, Overland um, is, is a fascinating story, and you know, Preservation North Carolina put that together, and that's they moved their, their new headquarters to the Overland community, and they just found and unearthed an incredible story of some you know of African Americans who lived out in the Overland, and you know, of course, I'm a, I'm a 19th century guy, so I'm always kind of eager to kind of dig into where the genesis of these neighborhoods were. And, um, you know, Oberlin traces its generation uh, genesis back to during the Civil War. There was a small, just a couple of free black families who lived there. And so after the Civil War ends, they all kind of amalgamate around this, this homestead, and that's sort of the birth of Oberlin. So when you look at after the Civil War, all about there were like eight or nine different black communities that popped up around the city all these freedmen um, kind of coming into the city to find work, to try to find relatives, to kind of start a new life. So these, these genesis of these uh, 
neighborhoods are, are wonderful and incredibly interesting to study. One of the, I can remember back when I was in graduate school, there was a lot of concern with the development of, of uh, the question of segregation and desegregation. Uh, and uh, it was when C. Van Woodward wrote the book, The Strange Career of Jim Crow. So it, it inspired a lot of interest in that. And one of the things that sprang up, and I think a professor at Chapel Hill named Joel Williamson was responsible for some of it, was that some of the segregation that took place in the South was intentional on the part of the black community, and that Oberlin was perhaps one of those communities where where blacks who had been slaves simply wanted to get away from the people who had been their masters and wanted to go and have their own town, their own world, so to speak. And you, you suggested that that, that might have been more widespread than just Oberlin. Yeah, I mean, this is a, these are autonomous communities where African Americans could, you know, um, be, be amongst their own neighborhoods, uh, go to their own stores, uh, start their own schools. So, yeah, there's a part of this was not only forced segregation, but almost self-segregation, too. One of the things that makes it interesting that it's coming up at this time is that, uh, and you mentioned Preservation North Carolina being involved in this, there's some effort to preserve parts of the Oberlin community, the parts that are left, because uh, the the need for land and developers in that neighborhood has has uh, well it's just immediately contiguous to Cameron Village and so the land is very valuable as you go on Oberlin Road which runs from Hillsborough Street to Benwood Avenue I believe uh, uh, as you go along it uh, between Cameron Village and Wade Avenue uh, there's a lot of what existed has in fact been torn down and replaced by commercial establishments or other kinds of housing not connected to the Oberlin community. I think one of the yeah. first things that was built over there was a YWCA, as a matter of fact. And in the, the video that I saw the other night, much was made by the black community of the the uh, the uh, uh, interchange of Wade Avenue with Oberlin Road, which, which wiped out a lot of houses and, and created a big... Uh, uh, open spot right in the middle, and where where and businesses have been built along that, and of course the the nature of Oberlin Road changes as you go. I don't know. I guess it's north of Wade Avenue, but in the in the direction of White Memorial Presbyterian Church and on down past uh, what used to be Daniel's Junior High, and it's now Oberlin Junior High. But I've learned they mm-hmm. renamed it uh, Oberlin Junior High. Yeah, and you know I'm once. Preservation of North Carolina really highlighted Oberlin in this documentary. It kind of brings up the question, what other of these sort of original original black settlements in Raleigh are in danger now? We talked about, you know, Wade Avenue kind of going right through the middle of Oberlin. What other places in Raleigh do we need to sort of get a jump on preservation to try to save some of these places that are kind of under the gun now? Well, maybe what we need to do is to roust out somebody who's connected with the preservation Society, because they would would be aware, and uh, uh, and I might could get some hints on that from you, as a matter of fact. And so we, I, I've wondered. I, I somehow I think the method community, which is a, was has historically been a black community and is being infringed on by a lot of businesses, comes a little bit later than the Oberlin community. But I really don't know much about that. Uh, uh, do you happen to know when it originated? They, that's almost sort of contiguous with, with Oberlin. I think you're right, a few years later, by Barry O'Kelly, who yeah. uh, you know, was, was sort of an anchor in that community and um, 
brought those people together, and you know, it's a story that's repeated in a lot of these different neighborhoods around um, around the community. You know, one of the communities they don't hear much about that I'm kind of interested in in our work through Dorothea Dix Park is the Nazareth community, which is sort of on the back side of, uh, of Dix Park. And so as we try to tell the story of Dix Park, were these the establishment of this Nazareth community, some of the enslaved peoples who were part of Dorothea Dix, that just kind of stay as part of the plantation, build their own communities? I'm not quite sure. And perhaps they were a, a place where people who who worked at, at Dix uh, may have you know, come together, uh, uh, almost like uh, their homes near the place they worked, almost like the cotton mill villages in, in that respect, uh, where uh, that, that's an interesting story, but not one that we really will spend a lot of time on tonight, but the cotton mill villages were, were built so that the people who owned the cotton mill could... Uh, have their workers close by and give them uh, a, at least a place to live. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, usually not anything fancy, but uh, but it kept everybody together and, and manageable. And that may be one of the key words right there, manageable. But uh, uh, the Dix community is an interesting community, and uh, a lot of people I've discovered uh, don't know who Dorothea Dix was. Who would you say she is? I'm going to put you on the spot. No. Oh. Uh, Dorothy Dix, I would probably say, was an, was an early campaigner for reform of, of prisons and the mentally ill. And she spent a lot of her pre-Civil War years traveling around the United States campaigning for the establishment of insane asylums. And so, you know, the, the way that she convinced North Carolinians to build insane asylums is a pretty interesting story. And she got it done by just dumb, dumb luck. Um, she was staying in a hot, uh, uh, the Yarborough Hotel right on Fayetteville Street. And of course, North Carolinians weren't really excited about putting money toward an asylum, but uh, next door to her, she was staying in a hotel, was the wife of a legislator from Fayetteville. And he got, she got sick, and on her deathbed, she, she was taken care of by Dorothea Dix, and this woman asked if there's anything that she could do before she dies. And Dorothea Dix says, ah, there is convince your husband to vote for the asylum bill. So she eventually died, but again, true to his word, um, her husband voted for the, they give it the passing vote, and that's how North Carolina got its asylum. Uh, I'm embarrassed to admit, I actually wrote the little thing in, in Mr. Mr. Uh, uh, Powell's biographical history of North Carolina on her husband, and so I had, uh, that's how I found out about that story. <laughs> But you know the truth is right now I can't remember his name, which is one of the things that happens to you as you as you go along in years. I'm warning you, Ernie, that uh, <laughs> it, it will slip away slowly but surely. We'll have to There's go back nothing, and reread the thing. No, nothing worse for a historian to spend a lifetime filling up your head with facts, have it to waste away when you get old. Well, my brother and I have a have a theory. What we call it the Kelly Bundy theory. I don't know if you've ever watched uh, Married with Children or not, but. Uh, <laughs> Kelly Bundy was going to be on a, a sports program. That's the daughter of Al Bundy uh, to try to win something for him because they had banned him, and he was teaching her all these sports facts so she could, you know, win the game. And it turned out that for every fact he put in one ear, figuratively speaking, another one fell out the other ear. So <laughs> she could only keep a certain number of things at bay at, at one time. And, uh, I don't think she ended up winning winning the contest, but uh, 
that is what you begin to feel like. Well, let me say to our listeners that uh, Ernie Dollar is the director of the City Museum of Raleigh, located, what is it, 225 or something like that? Uh, 220. 220. 220. I was close. It's about a block and a half from the Capitol, and uh, uh, it's located in one of the older buildings downtown Raleigh, a longtime home of the Briggs Hardware Store, and a building that in its various rooms had been used for a lot of purposes uh, over, over time. We'll come back to talk about that some more after we check the news. Ernie, you're going to have to get somebody at the City of Raleigh Museum to crank up a, a, a display on the history of radio in Raleigh or history of radio and TV in Raleigh because WPTF is about to celebrate in, uh, let's see, about two months. It will be 96 years old, which will put it among the nation's, I think they call them the legacy stations, but among the oldest, the founding fathers of radio in America. Not as old as KDKA, which is, this November will be 100, but uh, it's getting close there. Jeff is, uh, you know, when you talk about bringing the world to Raleigh, PTF is the one that did it, and, you know, it's been around forever. We protect the family. Right. Exactly. Uh, the motto of the insurance company that didn't start the station but bought it in 1928 and turned it into uh, uh, really the the way that the most Tar Heels east of the, well, in the eastern half of the state, if they knew what was going on with any immediacy, it usually was from listening to WPTF. So it came on in 1924, and the real run of radio stations was really a lot that came on the air. It didn't occur until the late 30s. And uh, WRAL radio, for instance, came on in 1937. And the radio station in my hometown came on in 1939. And then there was a little bit of blockage by the, by the World War II, and, and then there was a great outpouring of radio and the beginning of TV stations right after the war. Ernie, you know, a couple of weeks ago when we talked, uh, I don't know, if it, maybe it was just last week, it, time flies, uh, you gave me a homework assignment. And I, I uh, like many times when I was actually in school, I did not do my homework assignment. I told you I started it, but I got distracted and never got back to it. But I'm going to let the teacher tell, tell us what the assignment was going to be about. Because I remember the word hunter was in it. So what's, what's that all about? Yeah, so I mentioned mentioned break uh, our, our exhibit that we've got on Dorothy Dix Park at the museum. But out of that, I kind of kind of found a, a crazy story. You know, historians are like fishermen that we always kind of gravitate to those those places that no one's touched and kind of have fertile fields. So uh, if you go to the museum and see the exhibit, we we mentioned a fellow named John Hunter. And as I was, I was, I was in a meeting one day, and I was when historians kind of get distracted, we do historian stuff. So I was looking through the 1870 census for all the African Americans who were named Hunter, because the the, the plantation was uh, where Dix Park was was the the Theophilus Hunter plantation. So I wanted to see how many folks came into freedom and taken the last name of Hunter. And I was kind of going down the roster, and I found this guy, and his name was John Hunter. And when I looked at his age, my eyeballs shot out of my head because he listed his age as 101. I said, man, this guy has a story. So the more I researched in him, the more I found that, yeah, he, was, he died at 110, 
at the age uh, in 1876. So you calculate his age, that he was born sometime in the 1760s. So I kept on researching, and I found his obituary, and it talked about all the incredible stuff he'd seen. Um, but he remembers the British below what would become Raleigh during the American Revolution. He went with his master to fight them again at the War of 1812. He was there carving out Fayetteville Street out of the forest, cutting down trees and laying out the streets. He remembers America's first birthday and its 100th birthday. So I was really enamored by this guy named John Hunter. And I got to thinking that could I do the impossible and kind of trace his family. So I got to work and, you know, everything kind of fell into place. So I contacted his ancestors who moved up to New York uh, in November of last year. And uh, it took a little bit of convincing that it wasn't a scam, but I invited them down in November and I kind of gave them a tour and told them all their family history. They had been in Raleigh until recently. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, they came down last November, and none of them only had very remote inklings that their family had any connection to Raleigh because they moved out of out of Raleigh in the 1930s and went went north. So they had no clue of this deep, rich history they had here in Raleigh. All right. Well, one of the one of the things that's becoming clear now, and the, and you know that we had the Sesquicentennial, I think it was called, of the Civil War um, 10 years ago. Now we're, we're in the sesquicentennial of what would be called uh, Reconstruction. And uh, there's a lot of concern, since we're having racial concerns in America, with the history of what went wrong in the Civil War. And uh, it's, it's clear that it, it's not just one seamless story, but rather they're... they're there are periods when things were better and things when things were worse. And the period, say, from about 1900 till the time of the Second World War was really what I, one of the black historians called the nadir, which I think means the bottom, uh, mm-hmm. for, for, for blacks in America. And so that's the connection here is that's why people were on the move. That's why people were uh, willing to give up their, their historical connection, black people, to the South and move move to Detroit or Chicago or Buffalo or to New York City, to the Bronx, as it turned out. So, yeah. But uh, have you been able to connect these people up with their history? Yeah. Uh, we, we came, they came down in November, and we took them on a tour of Dorothea Dix, and I showed them a couple of different places that were really important to their family history. And uh, we, did a, a, we just finished up a short documentary on their visit. So that, that, that was my pretty, homework assignment that I didn't do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a pretty moving little piece um, because they were truly amazed and 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 humbled that um, their ancestor who had you know lived this long and and once you started going down the family tree, it is truly an American story because you've got um, some of the first earliest black legislators in North Carolina, um, their architects. Tuskegee Airmen, uh, veterans from the Spanish-American War, women who were some of the forefront of the, the jazz dance movement in the 50s and 60s. So it's just an incredible lineage to trace from 1760 to 2020. Um, and it's just, a you know, a, historians rarely get this much luck in a story in a lifetime. So it was just dumb luck and divine providence that got me here. Well, now I've been watching Henry Louis Gates 
program. I don't know if you watch that or not, about finding one's roots. And so I'm going to have to ask you a question here. Now, when this gentleman claims to be 101 or 110 years old, are you fairly sure that, that, that that's true? It, could it be substantiated? Uh, you know, all the records kind of do put him, substantiate that. You know, he talks about seeing Bannister Carlson below Raleigh and stuff. So it it holds his water about as much as any history I've done. Okay. And, okay. and so it, everything else falls into place. So one of the things that we're trying to do is now that we've got from from him forward is to do something, you know, uh, is to take his, his story back further. And, you know, the, the, the great story that really influenced me when I was growing up was when Roots was played on TV. And Alex Haley just kind of ignited the world with this crazy story that he pulled together about his family. So I kind of hope this might turn into Raleigh's version of Roots. From, I remember reading the first article that Alex Haley wrote. It was in the New York Times magazine, the part magazine part of the paper on Sunday. And the headline of the story was, From the Gambia, a, a, a shipment of, of uh, black workers, or what slave, whatever they were called. But this is where Alex Haley found Kunta Kente, or, you know, or these traces of him. And so on. made the hair stand up on the back of my neck, to tell you the truth. Because some very few blacks until that time had been able to trace their history, so that they found their what Haley called the furthest back person, uh, and uh, so uh, that's been a good a good effect. And if you haven't, for our listeners and you, if you haven't seen Henry Louis Gates' program on PBS, it's definitely worth watching. Oh, and you know, very influential to, to I kept Henry Louis Gates in the back of my mind. I was working on this project, so. Um, yeah. yeah, it's 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 very it's much easier to do this now with the advent of digitized collections and records. It it exponentially speeds up research for anybody's genealogy. Oh yeah, when I first started being interested in history, they were still doing you had to turn over every page, and so many things like census forms and so on were not indexed. You had to just turn over the pages and just keep looking. And mm-hmm, now almost mm-hmm. anything that's digitized, you can just put in what you want, and they'll tell you where it is if it's there. We're talking with Ernest Dollar, the director of the City Museum of Raleigh and the Pope House Museum. We're going to go away for a couple of minutes with some uh, of the commercial break here and uh, let Ernie catch his breath, and when we come back, we're going to see if there's anything else that he has been chasing lately by way of the history of our community. And also let him talk a little bit about the Pope House Museum, which we haven't talked about tonight. All that's coming up in just a couple of minutes. 948, WCCF FM 98.5, the Tom Kearney Show on a Monday night. We didn't get a chance to promo a little earlier, but tomorrow night we're going to talk about minor league baseball. Our good friend Woody Seymour is more than a fan of minor league baseball, and he's a little put out that, uh, that major leagues are going to be contracting the minor leagues. So we're going to talk about the minor leagues from a fan's point of view tomorrow night here on new uh, WPTF radio. Uh, Wednesday night is going to be our uh, our nostalgia night for this week. Uh, our uh, our topic is going to be sort of remember when. Uh, Nick Petro of the National Weather Service will be here on uh, Thursday night. Uh, we try to get him to come by about once a month and talk about the weather. Maybe he can tell us uh, 
about uh, all of this heat we're having and uh, how long it may in fact last. And also, we still are looking forward uh, to uh, the occurrence of the first hurricane uh, and what is promised to be by the predictors uh, a season with more hurricanes and more named storms than usual. Nick Petro on Thursday night. Tonight we're talking with our favorite historian in Raleigh. How's that? Ernie, is that proper respect for the historian's trade? That sounds good. I need to get that put on my business card. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and uh, uh, Ernie Dollar, Ernest Dollar, who is uh, director of the City of Raleigh Museum, and it has, I believe, as a as a citizen and a, a sometime historian, doing an excellent job in, in what he's, he's about there, and uh, he's keeping an eye on and helping develop programs for the City of Raleigh Museum. And also something he added, I think it was probably about two years ago that I first noticed it, uh, Ernie, and that is the, the Pope House Museum. How about talking about that a little bit? Yeah, when, uh, when, when I came on board with the City of Raleigh Museum, uh, the other uh, facility they, they let me run was the, the Pope House and had no idea what the, what the Pope House was or where it was or anything about it, but uh, once I got there and opened the doors and learned about it, I said, wow, this is an incredible story. And it is the home of Dr. Manasseh Pope. Dr. Manasseh Pope um, was from Rich Square, North Carolina. Audi. Um, came to Raleigh um, and became one of the first licensed African-American doctors in North Carolina. Um, he bounced around the state some, had an incredible life, and came back to Raleigh and built this house and settled in Raleigh and lived there until his death in 1934, and his daughters lived there until they died in 1999. And so it's an incredible story, and it's just filled with the most amazing artifacts of black life in Raleigh for the 20th century. So Where did a, Dr. A, uh, Pope go to medical school? Leonard Medical School, which was uh, run by Shaw University. Uh, that closed up. He was the first graduate in 1886, and the school kind of closed its doors at the end of World War One. That's where the gentleman that I was telling you about, Dr. Miller from Durham, went to. He was in the second class, I think, that, that graduated from Shaw University's medical school. And apparently the medical school was open from the early 1880s until sometime about the, world, the time of World War One. Does that sound right mm -hmm. to you? Yeah, definitely. Some people uh, are not aware of the progress that Shaw. Shaw was founded, I think, right after the Civil War by uh, groups of religious and philanthropic, philanthropic, usually northern persons, uh, who were interested in the fate of the uh, uh, blacks in the South. Uh, at least they contributed a great deal to it. So Dr. Pope's house has become a part of your museum and it's on, uh, what is it, on Wilmington Street? Yeah, 511 South Wilmington Street. So it's about on a, on, as, as a younger man, I could have probably thrown a rock from the Pope House to, to Shaw University. Hey, you're not that old, Ernie. <laughs> you know, oh. Sorry, old baseball out there. <laughs> where it is. But is it open regularly? Uh, and I know it's probably, it's not open now, as the, the main museum is not, but... but uh, right. Did you have a regular schedule for it when it when, when Yeah, we, we usually open that up on um, Saturdays from ten to two. Okay. Uh, and and coming up this year, we're really going to start. Um, it's taken us about eight years to catalog 
document, photograph, to bag and to tag every object that the Pope family left. So it's about 3,500 objects, and it's, it's taken us eight years because when you hit a bag of 200 doilies, that slows down everything. <laughs> but this year, this year, we're really trying to, to, to be able to, to tell Dr. Pope's story and to kind of really turn it into the, the museum that it needs to be. So I would expect in the next coming year to hear a lot about the Pope House. I remember, if I've got the right people, when his daughters had preserved a lot of the family photographs, and, uh, uh, and they were available when the last one of his daughters, I think, passed away in 1999, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's when uh, you folks got, uh, and your people got involved in it. Well, is there anything else we need to cover tonight in terms of what the City of Raleigh Museum, you, you say that we're waiting for Phase 3, uh, before it will reopen again, but you mentioned today, was it August 11th that you were thinking you might open again? That's that's what we've been told. So again, it all depends on the governor. And probably coming up uh, in the in the next coming months, we're going to be trying to rolling out some more virtual content. So uh, I may do some more online programs and some some deep dive uh, Raleigh history topics. So we're really going to, uh, one of the things that the, the pandemic has done is allowed me to get a lot of research done, but also to kind of uh, utilize the Internet to basically reach out and share this history through the Internet. So I would check back with the Friends of the City of Raleigh Museum website, which is our support group, and kind of keep an eye if we start advertising any of this really incredibly fun programming we're going to be doing. Okay, and that is, I guess, something that if uh, I don't know if your people are in the fundraising business or not. I've, uh, you've never mentioned that to me or not, but I guess if one wanted to participate as a volunteer or fundraising or something, if you had, had need for those people, that's the way that they could find out about that, too. Yeah, and I would tell all your listeners that, you know, all of these museums that you know, people go to and, and enjoy throughout the Triangle are really hard hit by, by the, the pandemic, either through visitation, we can't do any fundraising, um, you know, the city's budget's been hit through sales revenue. So any museum you can think of is really suffering through this pandemic. So I would just keep that in mind and tell everybody if they needed to, to feel passionate about the museum of their choice, to kind of include them in a little bit of extra giving this year. The City of Raleigh Museum, if I remember correctly, let me rehearse this now, is at 220, <laughs> I guess it's... Uh, Correct to say South Fayetteville Street, although there is not a North Fayetteville Street at all. It's just on Fayetteville Street. Uh, Fayetteville Street runs from, I guess now it runs from the Capitol to the to the municipal auditorium. Uh, I think that's it, right. I think at one time it may have gone, but beyond that, but I'm, I'm not real sure about that. Things change, like Halifax Street doesn't exist anymore, and, and so on. But that's all a part of Raleigh's rich history. Ernie Dollar is the uh, director of the City of Raleigh Museum and the Pope House Museum, and he has been our guest tonight. And I will say, Ernie, after we hang up tonight, I want to give you a call and talk for a couple of minutes, if I may, okay? That sounds great, Tom. Well, thanks for having me on again. I appreciate it. Okay, I'll talk to you later. And tomorrow night, we're going to talk about the fate of minor league baseball.